Hello and welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording this episode in April 2023. This episode is about some of the main attributes of the God of traditional Judeo-Christian theism. So we'll be thinking about the main attributes that God is supposed to have, how those attributes link with other issues such as time and free will, and various problems associated with some of the attributes and what some thinkers have said about God. We'll also see what else we get on to. Joining me in this episode, we have Sally Latham, who's a philosophy teacher at Birmingham Metropolitan College. Hi, Sally. Hi, Simon. Thank you for having me here. And we've got Michael Platt, who teaches at Harvey Grammar School in Folkestone. Hi, Michael. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me again. Uh, it's great to have both of you here with us. OK, so we're going to talk about God's attributes today. And as I say, we're talking about those attributes found in the traditional Judeo-Christian conception of God. Um, this topic appears in the AQA A-Level Philosophy specification and also the OCR RS specification. It's also important background knowledge for all other RS specifications and Scottish hires and the IB. So let's start with those attributes then. Um, should we go through them and indicate what the key terms mean, first of all, and then I'm sure we're going to start debating and discussing them. So, uh, Michael, do you want to start off with uh, some of the main attributes for us, please? Yeah, certainly. Um, so it's, I think it's important to note at the start where these terms come from. So first one, omniscience, is not a, a biblical term. It's not a scriptural term, um, but it can be used or it can be supported through philosophical reasoning or a reading of the religious text. But it should be noted at the start, I suppose, that not all religious people would use these terms in their worship or their day-to-day -day description of God. Um, but So omniscience, though, is, is the idea that God is all-knowing. Um, so you've got philosophical reasons for assuming that God knows everything. So the ontological argument, you would say knowledge is a great making quality. So God would have to know everything. If there's stuff that God doesn't know, then that's not the greatest possible being. Cosmological, teleological arguments, you'd have to have the knowledge to create and design. Um, and then it can be supported through religious reasons. So there are religious quotations. So before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Jesus talks about um, sparrows. Not one sparrow falls to the ground without God's knowledge or the Father's knowledge. So you can arrive at it through philosophical or uh, a reading of the religious text. But essentially, it's the idea that God knows all things but is also correct in all his judgments as well. So if there is knowledge to be had, God would have that knowledge. Okay, great. Thanks, Michael. Uh, Sally, do you want to take us through omnipotence? Yes, of course. So um, continuing with the sort of what is sometimes called the omni-god. So omnipotence means all-powerful. So do you remember that I always think of something potent being very, very powerful, like a powerful smell? Um, and some people take that to mean that God can do literally anything yeah, at all, including logical impossibilities. So there is no limit on God's power. He can make two plus two equal five. He can make the square circle. Um, for example, Descartes would have thought that. You know, so the laws of logic apply to us. They don't apply to God. So they don't limit God in in any way. And generally, that's not a very well um, accepted definition. Um, most people would say that logical impossibilities, making square circles, two plus two equaling five. They're not things that are out there to be done. Okay, They're not options out there in the world that God can't access. They're just not things. So when you say that God can do all things, that wouldn't include logical impossibilities. Um, some people have questioned with omnipotence whether God could, for example, commit evil. And if he can, then you know it's not a logical impossibility for him to do that. So um, could he do it? And again, that, that's a difficult one. Some people have suggested, well, actually, it is a logical impossibility for God to commit evil, because an all-perfect God cannot do that. Um, but again, no limit on him. It also look, it asks us to question how we view evil. So sometimes people would suggest that evil is not a thing. It's not something out there that is a quality. It's a lack. It's an absence. So, for example, we wouldn't go into an exam and come out and then say, oh, you know, I, I failed that exam. I have the power to fail. You know, well done me. You know, you've actually got the lack of the ability to pass. So God not committing evil, is a, it, it's, it's not that there's something out there he can't do. It's that he's not failing to be good. And that kind of that clears that up. But generally, the most accepted definition of omnipotence will be God can do all things. Logical impossibilities are not things and therefore they're not problematic for us. 
Okay, great from both of you. And nice to be sowing some seeds, I think, for some later discussions as well. And um, Sally, you mentioned evil. So shall we uh, just think then about omnibenevolence? Who wants to take that on? So uh, omnibenevolent uh, basic definition is all loving or all good or having all perfection. If you want a little exam tip, love is spelt backwards in the middle. So it's an easy one to remember if you do, if you're struggling with your key terms. Uh, so again, this can mean a whole number of things. So from a religious point of view, this is kind of a personal love that God has for his created beings, uh, for human beings. So in the Bible, it says, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Um, and there are very expression, uh, various expressions of that kind of love. But it can also mean kind of moral perfection. So influenced by kind of Plato's idea of the form of the good being the moral standard by which you judge all morality, the basis for morality. So it basically it can be understood as being all loving or having all goodness or all perfections. And again, it kind of links to some of the um, issues Sally was raising as well. So what we have to do with these attributes, I suppose, is are they internally consistent? Can you have an omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent being? Are those things logical? Um, and do they? How do they function together? How do they work together? So, can an omnibenevolent being commit an evil act? Because he would be all powerful, he could conceivably do it, but then that would go against his nature. So, yeah, you've got to look at them both as individual concepts, but also how they function together to make up a whole being, and whether that being itself is rational, consistent, or presents a paradox. Great, uh, thanks for both of you. Yeah, and just to make some links, so we've got some other episodes on problem of evil for example where we think about uh, two or three of these attributes together not where god is creating evil but where there's just an evil world uh, and whether all of that is consistent and as michael mentioned also some of these attributes relate to cosmological teleological ontological arguments but and even even if we ignore that stuff there's loads of juicy things to get our teeth into i think so one of the first ones that people um, talk about is how we understand God in relation to the world and specifically how we understand God in relation to time. Um, and this can often be a little bit confusing for some students. So should we uh, go through this then? So who wants to start by th getting us thinking about God in relation to time? OK, um, well, I'm happy to start off. And on our philosophy specification, um, it says you have to make the distinction between God as eternal versus God as everlasting. In both cases, um, God will have no beginning or end. Uh, we, it's generally accepted that God will not have a beginning because a beginning would imply some kind of cause and then God will have some kind of dependency. So God has always been there, will always be there. But then there's two very ways of understanding that relationship to time. So maybe just we take the first one um, as being everlasting. Everlasting would place God within time. Okay, so he has no beginning, he has no end, but he is within time and time will pass for him the way it passes for us. So there is a present for God, there was a past for God, there is a future for God. So I, I always think of this as being like a path. Um, and for God, the path is, is never ending. It has no beginning, it has no end. This is an infinite path. Our part of the path will be very small, <laughs> but his part of the path is, is continual throughout the entire thing. But that that means, like I say, that past, present and future do apply to God. That is useful for any kind of um, conception of God, whether he has a personal relationship with us. So if you want God to be a God who answers prayers at a particular time, in a particular place. You know, um, so I pray to God on a, on a, on a Thursday in, in June to, uh, to heal my grandma in hospital at a particular place. God can do that. God is within time. He also passes through time with us and has that personal relationship with us. The problem with it, um, well, one of many problems with it, will actually link into this idea of God and knowing the future, which I know we're going to talk about, about later. And then, you know, as soon as you place God within time, you have that problem of, well, does he know the future or doesn't he know the future? Because there is a future for God. The other conception, I'm happy to pass over to, to Michael for this, is to remove him from time and make him atemporal, and that's being eternal. So, Michael, should you want to... <laughs> Yeah, so basically what some people would argue is time would be a limitation on God. So if God can't alter the past or can't know the future, um, that would place a limitation. So also time is a, arguably a created thing. So God could not be subject to something that is created that wouldn't fit with this conception of the greatest conceivable being or being omnipotent. Uh, so he wouldn't be able to be subject to time. So God, therefore, is outside of time. 
Um, so we're going to go through a couple of them later, but thinkers like Anselm um, and Boethius remove God from time, looking down on time or time existing within God. But it's both in both cases, God is not subject to time because that would be a limitation on his omnipotence and omniscience. Mm. Yeah, and I just think I'm when kind of coming back to the way I, I visualise this. So with it everlasting, if you have that kind of that continual path and God is walking you know, the path for you know the, the whole of time and we have our small segment of it, if God is atemporal, he would see the entire path as, as one. Now, this is how... Um, how Aquinas described it. So if you were sat on a hill looking down on the path, and again, I know we're kind of uh, foreshadowing some of the things we're going to do in the second part, but then you can see all elements at the same time. So as we can't see what's further on in the past or you know, what has gone, God can see, can see everything. And that idea of God as an eternal God, an atemporal God, um, like Michael said, it takes away any limits of, of time. It also fits better with the idea of God as a creator, so if you you know if you've done the cosmological argument and this idea of God creating time and space, uh, which fits with the kind of the religious view and also the scientific view, the Big Bang being the start of time and space, well, a God that is independent of that is capable of creating that. Um, so sometimes you know the, the everlasting God is the more personal kind of Christian God, um, whereas the eternal God is the more philosophical God. It, you know, it fits with the the creator. But how is that God? going to have a personal relationship with us you know, if he's not walking that path with us if he's not part of time how does he then interact with us answer those prayers feel our pain and if I can just say something about um, essays on this because it does come up as an essay for the um, philosophy spec one thing that students fall into a trap of doing is listing attributes and the problem with omnipotence is and the problem with omnibenevolence is and the problem with you know etc cetera, etc cetera. you're much better off taking um, fewer attributes and really getting to grips with them. Well, okay, if we say this about eternal, we have this problem. We can solve that by making God everlasting. But if God's everlasting, we've got this problem. Maybe we should go back to eternity. And to really get to grip, you could write an essay on God and time. Um, and that would just be a, a tip to students to really kind of analyse fewer attributes if that happens to be the, the essay in how many weeks? <laughs> Six weeks? <laughs> um, or whatever it is. Yeah. And, and just there's so much to say about that. Yeah, that's really helpful, Sally. So, I mean, looking at all this material, I mean, thinking about the big themes here, about, about why we've got these attributes, why they've been developed over centuries by many people, we're thinking about God as all-powerful, and we've got to think about what sort of limits are there on God, and immediately we want to say there aren't any, but then there creates some, some problems. So let's try and remove as many limits as possible, and having God within time is a kind of limit partly because there's just a limit there. It's something that he is subject to, but also, as, as Michael said, there's something that is a created thing. Well, he has to be removed from that. But then we've got the opposite big theme, which is, and then if God isn't in time and there are no uh, very few limits on him, then how is he interacting with us? So there's a kind of causal issue here, right? How on earth is God causing? Now, at that point, sometimes you get some theologians of the past saying, oh, mystery of God, <laughs> But unfortunately, you can't say that on a on a philosophy uh, essay. But it, but that that's that's the big theme and the tension here, right? So limits and and then interaction. Uh, Michael, sorry, do you want to come in on that? Oh no, I was just thinking of Augustine's uh, famous quote on that when he was asked what was God doing before creation, and he said he was preparing hell for those that pry into mysteries. <laughs> just like, yeah, say, that might be witty, but I don't know if it's going to get you many marks, to be honest. <laughs> This is a, before we move on, just as a question to, to both of you, um, how are students with these two conceptions of God and time? Do they find it easy initially or is it sometimes a little bit difficult for them? Um, I, I think the, the, the initially they find this bit OK, I would say. Um, I think using the examples that Sally gives, you know, one is the path all the way through. The other one is the whole path um i think that's relatively straightforward to get your head around i think the next bit with the free will is where it ramps up in terms of difficulty i think i don't know if your experience is the same sally yeah i, I think the free will um element is very difficult and i think what we've got to remember is we're asking students to try and conceptualize something that is really really difficult and we we are stuck in time <laughs> um how on earth are we supposed to understand this idea of understanding and, and, and some kind of timeless experience 
And again, you've always, like, like you've already said, you've always got this option of like, well, we can't, you know, why are we trying to understand God with our, our puny brains? Um, but that I think would be a cop out. We have to try and we have to do the best we can, um, even if it's to rule out certain things, you know, even if we realise that the, we can't make the pieces of the jigsaw fit. Okay? For some, that is a reason not to believe in this God, the omni-God, the God of, you know, the monotheistic God. Now, what we haven't said yet is this, these attributes could be spread onto a number of different gods, you know, in your Greek or Roman mythology, and there would not be a problem. Stephen Fry famously said this, and you've probably seen the, the YouTube clip of him doing the interview where he's talking about whether he'd get into heaven. He's like, well, I wouldn't want to, but if I got to heaven and it was, a, you know, it was Hades and, the, you know, the gods of Greek mythology, I'd understand because they're never trying to be everything all at once. You know, and it, it's quite interesting, sort of the evolution of this idea of at some point we put all the attributes of these different gods onto one god. You know, started off you know, with one powerful god like Zeus. And then we think, oh, well, why do we need the others? Let's put all of them and let's magnify them into infinity. Possibly, if you're looking at the, you know, the anthropological evolution of this idea. Um, that's, that's one explanation. And whether we can make that work and whether we can make these pieces of the jigsaw fit is, is the whole discussion of this section. Great. Okay. Well, listen, we, we've we've set you guys up then uh, for the next uh, section. So we've we've thought about the basic attributes, uh, thought about initial views about time, and then the issue about limits and causation. So we'll see you in the next part. We're going to ramp things up where we're going to be thinking about free will and also probably heavy stones. And welcome back. Before we move into this segment, just to remind you to check out my website, search for Simon Kirchin, and my personal website will come up. Um, I've got a list of the topics we are covering on Philosophy Get Schooled and roughly when. Um, feel free to contact me, send in comments and questions. We'll try and include them in the discussion. We're recording this, as I said, in April 23. We've nearly finished everything in Philosophy of Religion and epistemology, and we're going to be moving into philosophy of mind, some other topics on the RS specifications, and then we might be tackling Descartes and Hume on Scottish hires as well. So we've introduced God's attributes and talked a bit about time. We can now think through some several issues and note how these attributes are interacting and raise questions about how or what God is and how he or they interact with the world and all of us humans and in particular as i've mentioned humans there because absolutely essential we might think is humans having free will but that's going to create some interesting problems now when we start thinking about what's going on with omniscience um sally do you want to introduce this topic for us then please sure okay so free will is generally assumed to be a a good thing and i'm sure this has been covered within the um, section on evil anyway so a good loving omnibenevolent god could easily create beings who just worship him and do whatever he, he tells them to but it's it's a better thing it's a greater good to give us this free will because it adds moral responsibility um, it allows us to be you know genuinely good people to come to god freely and all of that adds adds value to our actions so an omnibenevolent god would give us free will but an omniscient god knows all things. So here we have this this clash. Here's two pieces of the jigsaw that that don't seem to fit. So if we look at the definition of, of free will, then you act without constraint. Nothing forced you to act in that way. And importantly, you could have done otherwise. And then for God, obviously knowing all things, um, if what he knows, it will be true. Okay. So when we apply that to knowledge of the future, let's say that God knows the future, then he knows what I'm going to, to do tomorrow. So God knows that tomorrow I'm going to get up and I'm going to have Cocoa Pops for breakfast. Well, if God knows that, then that is true. Okay. So if it is true that I'm going to have Cocoa Pops for breakfast in the morning, then it cannot be otherwise. Okay. So it, it can't be that I suddenly decide not to because then it wouldn't be true and God didn't really know it. Then if I can't do otherwise, then I didn't have free will. So we have to make a decision either God knows I will have Cocoa Pops for breakfast in the morning and I do not have the free will to do otherwise. Or I could have Weetabix. I could do otherwise, but then God didn't know because you can't know what is false. 
So we have to make that decision then between God knowing the future and therefore being omniscient and giving me free will and therefore being omnibenevolent. Okay, and, and therein your, your problem. Okay, great. Nicely set up. So, Michael, what's the solution then? Okay, so Boethius uh, attempts to solve this problem. So Boethius was concerned with primarily the justice of those decisions. So a decision to have Cocoa Pops in the morning is is not, uh, you know, is fine, but it's not particularly a concern for Boethius. What Boethius was concerned with was how can God meet out punishment or reward if our actions are not free. So it links to the idea of God being omnibenevolent. So in the start of his work, or the start of the section on this, on, on the issue of free will and uh, foreknowledge, he lays out three possible solutions and why there are problems. So it could be that God is just uncertain about what we do. So he could say, well, I'm 99% certain that Sally's going to have Cocoa Pops in the morning, but there's always that 1% chance that he could be wrong. So that can't really be omniscient. He could know all possible futures. So he knows that Sally can have Cocoa Pops, Corn Flakes, Bacon Sandwich, but he doesn't know which one Sally's going to choose until she chooses it. Well, the problem with that is I could do that. I could make a list of everything that Sally could potentially have for breakfast, and therefore that's not really omniscient. And then the third thing is if God knows that Sally will have Cocoa Pops or will commit some horrific crime or whatever it is, uh, it becomes inevitable, and therefore God can't justifiably punish Sally for doing what she had to inevitably do because the future becomes necessary not contingent so he starts with god's approach or god's relationship with time so he says god sees time as if from a lofty peak above so that analogy that sally was using earlier that he sees the whole path the whole road so if we shorten it down to one life he sees my birth all of my life and my death in one simultaneous present so god does not have a concept of before or after, or future, or past, because God is outside of time. God sees all time together. So it makes no sense to talk of God foreseeing Sally having Cocoa Pops in the morning. He just sees Sally having Cocoa Pops in the morning. He sees Sally recording this podcast tonight. Um, So it's not like God is foreseeing that. So he then distinguishes between two things. Simple necessity. So So those are things that are inevitable because of their necessity is within their own nature. So the sun rising, the sun has no decision-making process. So it's simple. It has to do it. It has. It can't decide not to. Um, and then there's conditional necessity. So this only applies to free agents. Um, so when God sees Sally eating Cocoa Pops in the morning, he sees a contingent necessity. It has to be true. He has to be correct that Sally is eating Cocoa Pops in the morning but it's contingent upon Sally having made that decision. So God just sees Sally making that decision and he is correct that Sally has made that decision. Um, So therefore, he is only really seeing Sally's freely chosen action. So if Sally decided in that moment to commit a horrific sin or crime, God can justifiably punish Sally because it's just her freely chosen action. He's not known beforehand. He's just seen it as it's happened in that one simultaneous present. And that's how he attempts to solve the problem. Great. Thank you, Michael. Um, and perhaps I should I should just add, sorry, it's my fault because I didn't say it. So there are different emphases in the specifications. So if you're an AQA philosophy student, you might wonder who Boethius is. So he was a Roman philosopher. If you're doing OCR religious studies, you'll have been following what Michael said completely. But if you're doing the AQA philosophy, those are the kind of the main kind of solutions or kind of ideas that, that are at work in 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 the spec um sally have you got any thoughts about that um yeah just that for for aqa philosophers that you don't even ha- necessarily have to reference boethius but the idea of god being that idea of eternal and outside of time um one way i did dis- i see i did see this illustrated if you think about god in the center of a circle and then he's accessing everything at the same time so if time not that time is cy- cyclical but if time was represented by that circle God can access all things at all times, yeah, because he's in the centre of that circle and accessing it all simultaneously. And in that sense, yes, he could give us free will and also have knowledge of its use. Another option is what Richard Swinburne said. And Richard Swinburne knows that these pieces, as much as he's a committed Christian, knows these pieces don't fit. So for Swinburne, he said, look, in giving us this greater good of free will, God did sacrifice his omniscience. He does not know. And that's a really interesting solution or yeah I don't know if it's a solution but it's a really interesting response no it doesn't work so what's more important well it's the it's the giving of the free will 
and that is the best possible world. You can't you can't logically possible you can't logically have both. So which is the best? Nice. And Swinburne's on OCR religious studies uh, specification, isn't he, Michael? I think he is. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that summarised it nicely. I think. I mean, I've read his book. Is there a God? I haven't got to coherence of theism yet. Uh, it's on my to-read list. But there's a couple of decent quotes uh, from Swinburne. So he basically, and we'll come on to this, the logical possibility, but he said it's not logically possible for God to know infallibly what a free agent will do. So basically he said, look, there are decisions we make that are not free. So, you know, if I wake up and I've not had a lot of sleep and I get angry at a student and I just snap, that's not a free decision and God might be able to foresee some of that stuff like we know but there are some decisions that are completely free there are decisions about whether i give someone five pound on the street or not there's decisions about whether i choose to watch a certain tv channel or not and because god can only know what is logical for god to know and the future is not a thing yet god can't logically know it so it's not a limitation on god's knowledge it's just that that thing cannot be known no. that will make more sense when we've done omnipotence i suppose in a bit more detail so just to take us back to that first part that we were recording so the way where we've got to at the moment is um, there's a big tick for god being eternal when it comes to this problem because god sees everything simultaneously there is no past and future and even the present is different for god compared with us because our present is within time god's present is all present it's everything everything everywhere all at once basically Right, in terms of the film, right? But but we still got that issue where there's a big tick for everlasting because God's within time and then there's a suggestion that God can then interact with us more easily. So just to re- just to remember that, uh, everyone. But this is this is what kind of big tick in favour of God being atemporal and and eternal. Should we mention Anselm as well, Michael, because he's on the OTR RS specification. Yes, uh, why not? So uh, it's important to remember Anselm is a development of Boethius, and it specifically says that on the specification, Anselm's view as a development of Boethius. And a lot of students really scratch their head and go, what is the big difference? What is the, you know, what is the, he, Anselm said that's so different to Boethius? And the answer is not not a huge amount. Um, so it's more of a development and trying to perfect Boethius' ideas. So it's not like something you can really contrast in a huge amount of detail, but you need to know some of the key differences. So both agree that God sees time and experiences time differently to us. And it's all rooted in Anselm's view. If you've done the ontological argument, God is that in which nothing greater can be conceived. So therefore, God cannot be limited by time because that would be a a limitation on that greatest possible being. But we as humans are limited by time and space, those dimensions of time and space. So I can only take up one particular space. I only can inhabit this particular time. So this is why it's called the four-dimensionalist view of God, because it sees time as a dimension like width, depth, breadth, etc. So like I said, humans are limited by space. We can only exist in one space. Time for Anselm is a dimension, so we can only exist at one point in time. And this is what we might call presentism, this idea that we think there's something particularly special about this particular moment. Um, And Anselm kind of dismisses that view for God anyway. So because God is not limited by space as a dimension, God exists everywhere. God is omnipresent, but then God is not limited by time. So he also exists every when. So past, present and future exist in the same way equally and God would exist in all the past, present and future. So this is the kind of contrast with Boethius. So for with Boethius, God is disconnected from time. He's distant from time. But Anselm says all times and places are within God. So with Boethius, he stresses the separation. Anselm says that time is within God. And all moments, therefore, are equally and eternally present for God. Tomorrow, yesterday and today are all relative terms. So not because they are now to God. So God doesn't necessarily see things in a simultaneous present. But because God is himself eternity, they are all moments in God. So God doesn't see things simultaneously present, but they're all present within god that's the kind of difference between the two so there therefore Anselm then argues that god does not see our future actions as they would then become fixed but this is where he's quite radical he learns them because it's within because he is within them in eternity so god learns when we make a freely chosen action that we've made that freely chosen action 
and God is present in the moment of the choice. So freedom remains with the person and God doesn't know the event has happened until the choice is made. That's the difference. And that's that learning is kind of one of the more radical things. Because if you think back to like the prime mover, the pure actuality, God can't change, God is immutable, all those sorts of ideas. But it's not so much God is changing because those things have existed in eternity. But yeah, he, he's aware of you making those free choices. Have I made sense? Yeah. Well, in fact, so the next question I was going to ask to both of you is, because this stuff is pretty tricky. I mean, philosophy of time is hard, let alone God. I'm just wondering from both of you, how do your students react to all of this material? And particularly when they're hearing about Anselm, but I mean, with everything else. I suppose you want more than choosing not to answer the question on the exam. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think Boethius, they kind of, they, they kind of understand. And again, I think it's just stressing those key differences. So rather than Boethius kind of separating time and God, Anselm puts the two together. And then Anselm kind of says that, God learns our our kind of actions, whereas Boethius says, you know, he just sees them in a simultaneous present. I think we then get into a bit of discussion about which of those is better. So it's kind of just focusing on those key things, but it is complicated. And I think the tip I would say is you're not going to be able to understand it, but you just need to understand it well enough to get the debates and the arguments because no one can understand being outside of time. That's kind of impossible to picture in your head. There's a limitation to what you can actually conceptually understand with this topic, I think. And people expect to be able to think, oh, yeah, that's what it's like to be outside of time. You're not going to achieve that, I don't think. And, and Sally, what about your students? Well, thankfully, they don't have to do Anselm. <laughs> I was just thinking, I was honestly, Michael, listening, thinking, thank God that's not an aspect. Um, but the whole thing about time is is very tricky. Um and, and I, I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse, but as soon as you start talking about one attribute, you automatically start talking about another. And that can be great for a really analytical kind of, you know, in-depth essay, but it can let students start to feel a little bit like they're falling down a rabbit hole, I think. So as soon as we mentioned learning, then immediately I thought, well, then you've got to clash with immutability because God is, is thought to have to be unchanging. So as much as Anselm said, learning isn't a change well one argument is that it's it's it is a cognitive change okay and any kind of change you either become more or less perfect well if god is perfect then he can't change because he can't become more or less so how can he even learn anything new because that would be a cognitive change so then he really can't do that he can't know that you know learn the future with us it can't unfold another tick for eternity um but i think yeah it is very complicated but i think I would just advise students to see that as as a real way to get a, a real kind of deep analysis of a few, like I said earlier, fewer attributes rather than just rattling them off with a, a problem each. Um, but totally agree with Michael. If you're going to try to kind of literally get a God's eye view of <laughs> an eternal, you know, eternal knowledge, it won't happen. Um, so they, they, not that you're faking it, but just be kind to yourself if it's not if you haven't 100% got it, because we haven't either, <laughs> so that's okay. <laughs> Great. Well, let's leave that section there. I did promise that we we're going to do heavy stones in this section, but let's leave it and we'll do that in the next part where we'll be talking about omnipotence. And welcome back. Um, so we've talked about lots of issues regarding time and foreknowledge, and it's about time we got back to omnipotence and heavy stones. So Sally, do you want to take us through this discussion, please? Sure. Okay. So the paradox of the stone, on um, certainly on the philosophy specification, I believe the religious study specification as well. Yeah. So this is a, a problem with omnipotence singularly. Okay, so omnipotence not combined with goodness or anything else, just, just on its own. And it's a, an argument that this is an incoherent concept. So to call God um, an omnipotent God is, is incoherent. So it's, it, you can break it down quite, quite simply. So the question asked is, can God create a stone so heavy that he can't lift it? Okay. Now, if he can, then there becomes something he can't do. He can't lift the stone. So God is not omnipotent. If he can't, then there's already something he can't do. He can't lift the stone. So you don't actually have to pick either one because either way, 
you lead, you're led into an inconsistency and God cannot be omnipotent. It does not make sense to say God is a, an omnipotent God. And there have been various versions of it since. One of my students once told me it was on The Simpsons and they asked if God could microwave a burrito so hot he can't eat it. Um, so, you know, I mean, I would recommend sticking to the stone because that's what's on the spec. But it's just really presenting this kind of logical paradox to say what you're It might sound nice to say God can do all things, but it doesn't make sense. Great. Michael, can God make a burrito that's too hot for him to eat? Well, obviously, there's various different views. Sally's mentioned a few at the start. So you've got views represented by Descartes that said, well, yes, he can make a stone too heavy for himself to lift and then probably lift it because God is beyond logic. So logic, again, is something that we as humans have. It's a a creation of God, the logical order, the rational world, um, and therefore God is not subject to it. So God can literally do anything. Now, that view has some supporters, but again, I think you lose more than you gain from that view. So if you think about the problem of evil, we have free will, therefore God has to allow evil. Well, you could then say, well, God could give us free will and we always choose to do good because God could make up the logical rules, any logical rules that he wants to. Uh, We could appear on Judgment Day and go, we did everything that you wanted us to do, God. You go, yeah, absolutely, God, uh, I love you. Uh, I love all of humanity, therefore I'm sending you all to torture in hell. You go, why are you doing that? Well, it's not logical, but I don't have to abide by any form of logic. So you end up with quite a, a divine dictator. You know, he could make a square triangle tomorrow. He could change the rules. He could change anything. So you kind of lose quite a, a lot more than you gain from that scenario. Uh, and then the other view is God can do anything that is logically possible. So this isn't a limitation per se, because the stone is just not a thing that can be. So it's not something that God cannot do. It's just that stone cannot exist. You cannot have a stone too heavy for an omnipotent being. So that statement in terms of the language used isn't actually a a proper statement. It's not giving us anything that is real or true. So what Aquinas would say is God can do anything. Those things are not things, and therefore it's not a limitation on God to not be able to do those things. Yeah, good. Uh, Yeah, so I always think... It's a it's a nice uh, little paradox and problem, but it seems almost very glib, right? Uh, it's so easy to say, but then you delve into it and you think, ah, uh, perhaps it's it doesn't really uh, doesn't really make sense in the way that two of you have uh, brought out. Uh, Sally, do you want to come back in? Certainly, if it, if it comes up in the in the exam, sorry to get all exam based again. The things they're looking for is you for you to say that it's it's a problem with omnipotence singularly. And feel free to present it deductively. Um, you know, it's often uh, philosophy specifications will often put thing in, things into premises if they can. This works quite nicely for that. So, but yeah, I don't, I don't feel like there's a lot to say. <laughs> uh, yeah. So on the OCR spec, I think it's a bit broader than just the the stone paradox as well. It's it's other problems with omnipotence. So I, I whether we could expand this out a little bit. So I always talk about stone, sin, and swim. So can God create a stone, but then can God sin? So God does God have the power to sin? Um, again, Sally mentioned this at the start, and some would say that comes from weakness rather than strength. But again, it's some would say there's a contradiction there between the attributes of omnibenevolence and omnipotence. Um, and again, how Aquinas addresses that is God is a perfect being. So God can do what is logical or within God's nature to do. So he takes a bit more of a limited view of omnipotence in that it's it's not within God's nature to sin. Therefore, it's not a limitation. It's just against his nature. And the same with things like, can God swim or climb a tree? Well, if God exists everywhere, that's in theory impossible for God to do. But again, it's not within the nature of that being to do. And you've got a couple of other things as well. So you've got some people who kind of reject the omnipotence view. So I think Peter Geach said that omnipotence can be defined in no graspable sense or no graspable sense has ever been given to this sentence that God can do everything. Um, It either leads to self-contradiction or at least is manifestly untenable from a Christian point of view. So some people favour the idea of God limiting his power in order to form a relationship with humanity, kinesis, uh, where God self-empties, or God is simply almighty but not all-powerful. So power is only impressive if you can resist it. So I always give two examples. You've got Argentina beating France in the World Cup final. That's an impressive expression of power. Australia beating American Samoa 32-0. You would go, which is more powerful, which is a greater demonstration of power? You'd probably go the one that has been resisted and overcome rather than the one that just 
flat flat out destroys everything so there's different ways of understanding omnipotence in that sense and maybe god is almighty so capable of being resisted but ultimately will win out in the end through effort and exertion in some way or whatever that means for god so yeah with the ocr spec it's a little bit broader than just that problem and it's worth considering those different solutions and attitudes to the omnipotence problem as well yeah and i do think you know talking about what omnipotence actually means and what God can and can't do can go in a number of different ways. I mean, this, we talked about um, sinning, you know, and, and sin being a lack rather than a, a power. But another interesting one is deceit. So, you know, something that's quite important for a lot of Descartes' arguments is all well, deceit is an imperfection. You know, well, you know, so but can God tell a lie? You know, could could he deceive if he wanted to? Um, and equally, is deceit always an imperfection? So we might be able to think of times when actually it would be more perfect to deceive or not deceive. You know, if your small child comes up to you and asks where babies come from, you know, you, you deceive. <laughs> you know, and that's probably more perfect than being, you know, completely honest. So, you know, you can certainly play around with a lot of these ideas of what perfection means, what what his powers should and shouldn't include. Definitely, yeah. Certainly need to go beyond the stone, I think. <laughs> Great. Okay. So listen, let's um, think about one last topic that's on both specifications. And it's kind of really important, I think, not just as a kind of quick, easy paradox, but something, you know, throughout the whole Christian, Judeo-Christian tradition. And that's thinking about the relationship between God and morality. So Sally, do you want to introduce this one for us, please? Sure. Okay. So it's part of um, many religions that are moral code comes from God. We get our morals from God, this d- divine command theory. But Plato brought out a particular problem with this and this relationship between between God and morality. Um, and it's called the Euthyphro Dilemma. So it appeared in his, his dialogue, which was called Euthyphro, I believe. And in it, he sets this scene where Socrates meets this man, Euthyphro, who's on his way to court to testify against his own father. Um, and again, if, if I remember correctly, his father had had an argument with a slave, tied up this slave, left him out. He died from exposure and then you know, he was off to be tried for this crime. And Euthyphro doesn't particularly want to testify against his father, but he knows it's the, it's the right thing to do. So Socrates says, well, why are you doing it then? And he says, well, it's, it's what the gods would want. It's, it's, it's the pious thing. It's the holy thing. It's, you know, it's the right thing to do. So it would have been gods, plural. So Socrates asks, and I'm just going to get this correct, whether the pious or holy is beloved by the gods because it is holy or holy because it is beloved by the gods. Okay, so we're not going to quote that. (laughs) Um, We're going to turn it into a singular God. And the question is, is something good because God commands it or does God command it because it's good? Okay, sometimes called the two-horned dilemma because either way you're going to have, have a problem. So if we take the first one, something is good because God commands it. Well, anything can then be good. So God says, okay, well, I'm going to command that murdering babies is, is a good thing. And okay, it is. So the problem with actually, obviously, you have this arbitrariness to, to morality. Where is God getting his code from? Why has he decided that, you know, eating jam today is, is morally sinful? And in addition to that, to say God is good becomes meaningless. Okay, because, well, God God is good means God does what God says he should do. You know, there's no kind of external check on God, if you like. So if we look at the other side of it, God commands it because it's good. Well, then we have an external source of morality. Where this comes from is another question. But God is now demoted to a messenger. So he's telling us about a moral code that is, is already there. In this case, we have a problem with then his omnipotence because he can't change it. He's telling us just what's good anyway. So either we have this potentially, this first potential situation where to say God is good is meaningless and we've got problems with omnibenevolence, or we've got the problem where we've got issues with his omnipotence. So either way, we have this problem with God's relationship to morality. Great. Thanks, Sally. Uh, Michael, thoughts from you? Yeah, so I, this is still obviously an argument quoted by lots and lots of people. And, and I think it's mainly because the moral argument has become such a, or I think it's had a bit of a resurgence. It's not on many specs anymore, but whenever I listen to uh, debates about the existence of God, the moral argument comes up time and time again, because without that kind of moral standard found within God, people argue that our morality is arbitrary um, and uh, culturally specific, and you need God as kind of the anchor for goodness. But this kind of undercuts that argument because it's kind of saying, well, you know, if God commanded like killing babies would be acceptable, we would all go, well, actually, no, we don't 
we don't think it is. So that suggests our morality is is coming from somewhere else. Aquinas, I think, tried to resolve this problem. If I remember rightly, he said God commands again what is in line with a perfect being, an omniscient being, his judgment is good. God is the ultimate moral standard. So he commands what is in line with that ultimate moral standard what comes from within god's own nature so it's not something outside of god that god is commanding but something that comes from within uh, the nature of being the perfect uh, and omniscient correct uh, and having correct judgment at all times um but that would be one possible solution to it so similar with the omnipotence ideas it's it, god would command what it's logical for a, a perfectly good being to command yeah sally thoughts from you yeah, I think it's a really difficult one to to solve. Um, one potential argument would be that um, something becomes good because God commands it. So we have our first prong, but it's not arbitrary. So God, again, rather than be guided by logic, is guided by love. So he will always command, you know, in, in the name of love. Then you can say, well, can, hold on, who does he love? Why does he love? You know, so maybe maybe that part of it is arbitrary. Well, not if God loves all creation. So if you can say God will, what God commands becomes good, God is guided by his love for creation and that will provide the consistency, that is a potential solution to that. And I think for, for me, thinking about uh, this, this dilemma, in a way you're, you're still working through something we said at the start, which is the limits that, that seem to be imposed on God. And we're starting with that basic thought. Are we saying God is omni, right? The omni God, as, as Sally referred to him. Well. Are there going to be limits on the omni-god? Well, actually, it might be sensible to have limits, and and here's one of them, right? The limit is, the constraint is that there is a moral standard outside of God. but And perhaps that's worth uh, going through because, actually, the omni-god doesn't really make sense. It's, um, I mean, I think Michael's phrase was, God is mighty but not all-powerful, right? And so that's one way out of the of the dilemma. But again, you're thinking through, this is another debate where you think through, do we want to, to have God who is not limited at all, limits don't apply, or do we think that there are some sensible limits, such as, you know, a uh, different one we've mentioned, logical impossibility, right? Is that something we don't need to worry about? So, I mean, uh, I don't know what it's like if you're a marker, but certainly at university level when I'm, teaching this stuff I'm, I'm looking for students kind of thinking about that and thinking through big themes around limits and constraints of god and what it means to say god is all powerful or all loving or in this case all good so i don't, I don't know how much you you, uh, you encourage students to bring that out in in exams i would certainly say there's a number of different kind of routes to take if this comes up um as an essay question um and i would like i say always encourage students to say well, look i'm going to show that the concept of god is coherent incoherent based around maybe two or three attributes you always uh, flow into more naturally but you know my focus is going to be this and one essay plan I always suggest is why don't you do the whole thing about logical impossibilities and if you have the argument that the logically impossible is not a thing then you can have that theme running through your entire essay so you know logical impossibilities are no limit on God's omnipotence the paradox of the stone would be a logical impossibility. Um, you know, knowing the future is a logical impossibility because it's not a thing to be known. There's not something out there that God can't know. It's not a thing. It's not happened. You know, and you can run through like that. You know, and and just say, look, if we really understand what logical impossibilities are, you know, and how they relate to God, then you know, we can make sense of the idea of God. It's just it's one, it's one possible way to to do it, but certainly have your idea. Of how I mean, for, you know, if you're on the philosophy spec and it's a 25 mark essay, know how you're going to go into it before you go into this question. Otherwise, you end up with a very list-like essay. Yeah, a problem with this is, and a problem with that is, and a problem. You know, it's, it's yeah, very prosaic. Then, I think I think for the OCR spec as well, it's it's really useful to make what the example called synoptic links. So what the exam board, in order to get to the top top level, they like to see holistic essays. So knowledge of not just the topic but making those connections and links um, and I think this topic is really useful for bringing in lots of other things that you discuss on the spec because the way it's taught and I, you know I'm to blame as much as anyone else is for this you teach as kind of discrete units without necessarily always drawing attention to those connections so having an understanding of well the problem of omnipotence uh, that will help you improve your 
uh, ontological argument essays because the ontological argument rests on God being at least not requiring a contradiction, so therefore being possible, and therefore if God is possible, it's necessary, and therefore God exists. Well, if God is incoherent or logically impossible, that argument doesn't follow. Um, and the same way with ideas of the first cause argument, well, you you are you argue that it must be extremely powerful, but then what does that mean? Can you say with any anything with any certainty? And it also goes into lots of stuff. Uh, I know this is outside of our remit, but developments in Christian thought we have to do natural and revealed theology. Now, this is what arguably natural theology leads to. This argument disputes can't clarify what omnipotence is, which is why some thinkers like Karl Barth would go natural theology is not a route to understanding God because you end up with all these contradictions and all these problems. You just need to stick to scripture, church, tradition, rather than ended up with all these philosophical knots that you can't undo. Um, And natural theology ultimately leads you to a God that is very difficult to reconcile with the Christian view. Because, I mean, we've not, we've not really touched on it much, but the relationship with time is fine if you're talking about a deistic view of God or even a, perhaps an Islamic view of God or a Jewish view of God. But if you've got a Christian view of God where God enters into time, then God being outside of time is a real problem because if God is seeing everything in a simultaneous presence, does that mean Jesus is still being crucified? Is that means Jesus is still being incarnated? Does that mean the incarnation and atonement have not been achieved because they're still happening in Anselm's view because past, present and future exist equally? So in a sense, the atonement has not been achieved. How can a God be outside of time and enter into it? So you've got loads and loads of issues that make all those synoptic links across the course. And it's really useful. And I've not even mentioned things like religious language via negativa would say this whole debate is <laughs> moot anyway. So, yeah, it's it's a really interesting one for drawing all those different debates and discussions together, I think. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you get asked this in an exam as an essay, it's going to, for philosophy, it'll be something like, is the concept of God coherent? And your answer will be very directly, yes, no, yes, with qualifications. That's something the specific, sorry, the um, Mark scheme is looking for is a direct answer to the question. But I think beyond that, it's quite important to think about, well, what are the implications of your answer? even if that's not part of the essay. Because if you can't make sense of the idea of God, if it is incoherent and you can't make these pieces fit, what do you do? Is that a reason to reject belief in this omni-God, in this monotheistic God? Um, could you believe in a different kind of God or many gods? You know, is a, is a different kind of, um, of theism plausible? Is Do we hold our hands up and say, great is a mystery of faith I can't make sense of it I don't care I believe anyway you know and then you know the chances are that this was never going to persuade you one way or the other and you know in any case so I think from just from like a personal philosophical place it's quite interesting to think well what are the implications of my answer beyond the direct conclusion to my my essay for the marks my my a-level uh, great. That was really good and really helpful, uh, both of you. Not not just all of the material we've had so far, but those reflections at, at the end. Um, perhaps we should draw things to a, to a close, though, and thank both of you. So, Michael, thanks for coming on again. No, thanks for having me. It's been great. And Sally, thanks for coming on to you as well. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It was a, a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, great. Thank you. And uh, thanks to you for listening. I hope that was enjoyable and helpful. Uh, And I hope you'll listen to some more Philosophy Get School episodes soon. 